church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, hear. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And if you will allow me this afternoon, I want to speak to you for a few moments from the subject, A Bored Mind. You may be seated. Before I begin today, let me say what a great honor it is to be here. The Atkins, thank you for inviting me to come. I give honor to all the ministers of this district, to the leadership of this district. It's just an honor to be here today, and I do hope that I can challenge you a little bit today so that we can become better people. In the late 80s, as a result of some chaos that took place in the church I was attending at the time, my pastor came to me and suggested that I go back to school. We had had three families affected in one month by people whose lives had become so hopeless that they gave up hope. And as a result, did bodily harm to themselves. And after carrying on a conversation with my pastor, we talked for quite a bit of time. He said, Brother Hughes, we don't have answers for these people. There's got to be an answer. I suggest you go back to school and try to help us find some answers. Well, I have been taught to obey my pastor. So I did what he asked. And I started studying families. And as a result of that study, I, what I talked to you about today has to do with why our family structures are so chaotic. The problem of America is not drugs, it is not Hollywood, it's not alcohol not cigarettes, it's not even sin. The problem 
of America today as our families have fallen apart. And as a result of our chaotic families, there's no place of healing for people who are hurting. I am convinced that the reason America is not receiving the revival that it has seen in the past has nothing to do with the message, the men, or the means. We have all those. We have the money. We have the greatest preachers. We have the message. But it's not happening like it did. Why? Because dysfunctional families can't heal. This is the family of God. And all the chaos that we have in our natural family we drag into the church and the church becomes contaminated with all of our issues and it keeps people's lives from being changed. And if we don't get our families right, we will never have revival. Revival starts at home. Church is not relegated to church. You don't live for God when you get here. You start living for God at home. You teach your children how to live for God. You practice at home what you say you preach here. You live it at work. You live it everywhere in your life. You don't just do it when you get here. But we've learned how to do that. We've learned how to put masks on. We've learned how to play parts. We've learned how to act. We've learned, we've learned how to act like everything's okay when everything's not okay. Standing in a hospital corridor about 3 o'clock in the morning, about a month before my pastor and I had a conversation, I was standing there with a man and his wife had taken an overdose and he's standing there and he's beside himself and he's, the doctor finally comes out after four or five hours of her being in uh, the trauma unit of the hospital and the doctor began to talk to this man and he said to him, that morning standing in the hospital corridor that the odds of your wife surviving is less than 5%. We have pumped her stomach. We've counted 19 amitriptyline tablets. It only takes three to stop your heart. We have no clue how many her body has dissolved and absorbed at this time. Her blood pressure is somewhere around 100, 230 over 180. Her heart is beating over 200 beats a minute. If her heart doesn't explode or she doesn't have a stroke, it will be a miracle. The odds are she'll never walk out of this hospital. And he began to weep and he said, Doctor, what have I done that would cause my wife to want to take her life? And his response was, Sir, the odds are very high that it has nothing to do with you. He said, well, what does that mean? From what we know at this point in time, the odds are incredibly high. This has to do with issues of her life she's never healed from. And today they're destroying her. And he said, well, I don't know what they could be. We've been married 30 years, and I, I thought I knew her and her family, but I don't understand. And the doctor said, well, when we get to the bottom of it, if she survives, we will discover that chaos causes this to happen. People don't just do these things. There has to be a loss of hope that there's no hope. And when you give up hope, 
then these kind of events happen. And standing there, he began to talk to him. He said, sir, um, if she survives, we can't let her out of the hospital. She has to be put in a treatment program. If I let her go within 24 hours, she will succeed where she didn't this time. She must go into a treatment program. And his response was, sir, I, I don't mind her going to a treatment program as long as you don't make religion a problem in her treatment. And he kind of laughed. He said, well, you have every right to say that. But let me just reassure you. If I treat her and simply try to help her recover, her odds of recovery are 7%. If I leave her alone, her odds of recovery are 9%. If we treat her spiritually, her odds of recovery are 80%. She needs a church to help her heal. She needs her church family to help her heal. And then he said, well, in this treatment process, we need the family to participate. And the gentleman said, well, that's not a problem. My family will participate. He said, no, sir, I, I, I mean the entire family. He said, all of us? Yes. He said, there's 37 of us. He said, it doesn't matter how many they are. We need everybody to participate. And so the gentleman said, well, why do you need everybody to participate? And that doctor's response was, because there's no healing outside of a family environment. This church is the family of God by design. God knew that your ability to heal is defined by how healthy your church family is. Your ability to survive and recover is defined by how healthy we are as a church body. By how healthy our family units are. And a church is no stronger than its weakest family. Now, I've heard people say that strong churches make strong families, and that is not true. Strong families make strong churches. God didn't ordain him, the church, and the family. The oldest institution is the family. The church is an extension of the family. The family is not an extension of the church. This thing works, folks. But we've got to get it right. We've got to get our lives correct. Anybody read this Bible carefully? Is there scripture in Peter about something about husbands? Any of those here? Husbands. Live with them according to... Not very many people read that scripture, have you? It's in the book. I challenge you to find it. Live with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as the weaker vessel. That doesn't mean she's less than you. That means she's smaller than you. Giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. Being heirs together. Say together. Being heirs. When God looks at you, if you're married, He doesn't see you. He sees both of you. Being heirs together of the grace of life. 
that your prayers, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, us Pentecostals have made up more dumb doctrines about the devil in the last 20 years than my entire life that I have lived. We got spirits everywhere. Everything's a spirit. Everything's not a spirit. If you think everything's a spirit, you don't believe Jesus conquered the devil at the cross. If you read the book, his brother named Jude said that he is bound in chains until the day of judgment. Anybody read where he got loosed? He's bound in chains until the day of judgment. The devil is not your worst nightmare. You're his worst nightmare. You have the ability to rearrange his territory anytime you choose. You're not a victim of the devil. You're not a, the devil's not wrecking your life. The devil's not putting dumb thoughts in your mind. The devil doesn't make you have bad thoughts. The devil doesn't tempt you with lust. Now, I can't read minds, but I can read faces. And your face just said, you don't believe what I said. You know, some of this stuff we say and do, it, it just, it, it, we've checked our brain at the door. We live by our feelings and our emotions instead of what we know. And what you feel will never change your life. What you know will change your life. It's your convictions of truth and your understanding and knowledge of God that will change who you are. Where do all these bad thoughts come from? Well, if you'd quit looking at the dumb pictures and reading the dumb books, there's no, you have no resources for bad thoughts. Can you show me one place in the Bible where the devil ever created a body and lived in it? What is the devil? Who is he anyway? He is a what? He is a fallen angel. He is nothing more than a fallen angel. He has no more power than a fallen angel. He has never created anything. He has no creative powers. He's never created one bad event. All Jesus said he did was lie. He is a liar and the father of it. When did what has Satan ever created? He made you in his image, didn't he? What he equipped you with. 
Can you plant a seed and grow this microphone? Can you pick it off a tree? Do you mine it out of the earth? Do you get all of its parts and lay it on a big blanket? Little silicon, little silver, copper, plastic. Throw it up in the air and it falls down a microphone? Well, that's evolution. Evolution says you keep throwing the parts up long enough, they'll eventually come together. Where did it come from? Just happened? The creative genius of God living in a man gives him the ability to create. God put His creative nature in every one of you and you can create. You have the power to create whatever you choose to create. You can create chaos or you can create peace. You can have a good life or you can have a bad life. It's your decision. Don't blame some devil about your dumb choices. It's your choice. The devil didn't make you do it. He didn't twist your arm. He didn't tempt you. If you didn't enjoy doing it, you would quit. It's real easy to prove some of these things. All you got to do is think. So all you got to do is think. You ever seen a blind man who had a problem with lust? Why not? Well, that means it's defined by what you see, doesn't it? If you can't look at it, you can't have a problem with it. See, men are visual. We respond to eyesight. We respond to what we see. We, we're affected by, by what we experience in life. Women are not. There's never been a car wreck produced by a woman driving down the street seeing a man in the front yard in a bathing suit. There have been multiplied millions produced by a man driving down the street seeing a woman in the front yard in bathing suits. He's run over trees, cars, dogs. I read recently where a man parked his car in the vestibule of the church. The road teed. There's a couple of ladies walking along the sidewalk that are not dressed properly, and he's watching them, went right straight through the stop sign, across the street, jumped the curb, up the front steps, and into the front door of the church. You're affected by what you see, and nobody can guard your eyes but you. It's not your wife's responsibility to guard your eyes. It's your responsibility to guard your eyes. And you better make a covenant with yourself about things you will do and you won't do. It's your choice. It's your decision. It's not a devil influencing you. You know, the Bible is such a unique book. It has so many incredible details that most of us never pay attention to. I've been incredibly intrigued by the writings of John over the last few months. 
I have this tendency to get hung up in certain books, and I just spend days there. And, and the more I, I, I get into it, the more things I start seeing. And I'm, I'm studying the book of John, and, and, and I'm going back and reflecting over things I've studied and learned before. And I, I know that the book of John, the gospel of John, was written somewhere between 88 A.D. and 92 A.D. All the other disciples are dead. He's the only living, remaining apostle. The rest are gone. Of the 500 that saw Jesus go up, he's the only one surviving. He's the only eyewitness of his day. He has Matthew in his hand. He has Mark in his hand. He has Luke in his hand. He has all the writings of Paul. He has the writings of James, of Peter, of Jude. He has all of those books at his disposal. He can read them. So John starts writing about Jesus. And he doesn't write to give history because he, he, he starts off in the beginning of his ministry and jumps to the last year of his ministry. He don't even cover the first and second year of ministry. He jumps from one to the other. But he, he's writing, and he says so many things. He just gives these little one-liners that if you don't pay attention to them, you just ignore them. One's in, in, in the second chapter. He knew all men's hearts. Jesus was never caught unaware by circumstances or people. He never arrived anywhere and, and, and was thrown into a situation he didn't know was going to happen. He knew their hearts before he got there. He knew what was going to happen. And John said he must needs go through Samaria. What a statement. He must. Jesus didn't say I need to go to Samaria. John said he had to go to Samaria. He must needs go to Samaria. The tenth chapter or the eighth chapter, he, he says. Early in the morning, or he went to the Mount of Olives. The next verse says, early in the morning, he went to the temple. Daybreak, he goes to the temple. When did he go to the Mount of Olives? Did he go the night before and spend all night there? That was his prayer room. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane's at. That's where he went every time he went to Jerusalem. He'd go to his prayer room and pray. So after praying all night, he knows he's going to have this encounter with the woman caught in the act of adultery. So John writes the conclusion of his life and he gives us the, the statements of what happens to Jesus hanging on the cross because he's the only one, he's the only eyewitness who was there to hear and see what happened on the cross. Everybody else ran but John. He was just a teenager at the time so he didn't have sense to get out. You know, research says that, that all the brain chemicals you need to be a healthy adult don't show up till your early 20s. So <clears throat> Yeah, some of those are real helpful to help you understand this is really dangerous. Those don't show up till somewhere in the mid to early to middle 20s. Well, here's John, this teenager hanging around, and, and, and they're going to crucify. He could have been killed. It just didn't dawn on him he shouldn't be there. He, he's at the cross. And he, he writes and tells us what Jesus said on the cross. What were his last words? 
John records them as it is what? It is finished. What do you think he said? It's over? It's through? I completed it? The Greek word that's used there is tetelestai. Barclay says that that is a term that came from the Olympids. It's a term used to describe the behavior and actions of someone who just won an Olympic event. It's the victor shout of triumph. The last word Jesus had on the cross was, I won! I won! I won! I won! All of earth started celebrating. The graves burst open. The dead in those graves came out and started walking back through the city because he won! He didn't have to go to hell to get the keys of death, hell in the grave. Carmen don't have a clue. Paul said, he that ascended on high is he that first descended into the lowest parts of the earth. That's not speaking of hell. It's speaking of a womb. He that ascended on high is he that first descended into the womb of a woman and was born of a woman to become the Savior of the world. It's not speaking of going to hell. When he died on that cross and said it's finished, hell showed up and gave him the keys. Paul said he led captivity captive. He led captivity captive. He didn't lead the prisoners captive. He led the guards captive. He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Writing to the church at Colossae, he said, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle out of them. He took Satan and all of his angels that had fallen to heaven, and there was a parade in heaven that celebrated the victory Jesus had on the cross. Paul used a term for triumph that's called triumbano. It's a term used to describe the behavior and actions of a Roman general who's won a major war and brought a region into the leadership of the Roman Empire. He's brought it, there was peace. When he walked away, there's no guards have to remain because he's convinced the people that Rome is the best thing that could ever happen to him. And when he gets to Rome, he gets to have a triumbano. And Rome declares a celebration. And all of Rome dress in white, and they line the Appian Way, and as the Roman general comes with his chariot, the, the citizens of Rome start shouting, Nike, which means victory, to the victory. But the general and his soldiers and his officers shout, Triumbano, 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 to the victory. 
because they have conquered a nation and brought it under the control of the leadership of Rome. Paul said he led captivity captive. He gave captivity captive. He also said having spoiled past him, principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing, triumbano. Heaven was waiting for at least 4,000 years to see what God was going to do about Satan. You understand Satan caused more chaos in heaven than he did here on earth? The place of holiness and the place of peace was wrecked by the rebellion of Satan. Heaven had been the two-thirds of the angels, Michael, Gabriel, and the other 67% that were still there, that were still loyal, were waiting to see what's going to happen to Satan. Paul said he took him to heaven. And heaven celebrated. Why? Because Jesus said, I won. I hope you understand today I have destroyed every excuse you have for your dumb behavior. You understand that? There is no excuse for the dumb stuff you do other than you enjoy doing it. You're not at the mercy of a devil. You have royal blood flowing through your veins. When you're born a child of God, you become equipped with the power and the authority to use a name that's above every name. You are equipped with the power that created virgin birth. It's living in you. You're not at the mercy of life or the mercy of uh, emotions. You, you can become anything you want to be. You've got to choose to do it. You've got to quit making all these dumb excuses. I've been working with families for 28 years now. I've had over 25,000 sessions with people. Probably closer to 30 at this point. As of today, Nobody's ever walked into my office and said, Brother Hughes, Mr. Hughes, or Dr. Hughes, whatever they want to call me. Doesn't matter to me, it's just a name. Nobody's ever showed up and said, Brother Hughes, you are looking at a problem. Everybody I talk to has a reason for their dumb stuff. My wife just knows how to tick me off. She won't let me be the head of my house. Oh, you spoiled brat. You don't want to be the head of nothing. Won't be the head. She's not letting you be the head. You see, here's the problem. Jesus teaches you how to do it. And according to what Paul says, she's not obligated to follow you nowhere. If you don't prove to her, you'll die for her. If you're not willing to lay your life down, she's not obligated to follow you nowhere. That's the condition Paul set on her obeying you and submitting to you. Besides that, you take the Scripture out of context. 
you want to say wives be submitted to husband, but before he ever said for a wife to be submitted to a husband, he said, submit yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Submission is a two-way street. You're supposed to be as submitted as she is. But I deal with men all the time. Your attitude is nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm the man of this house. You spoiled brat. Would you please grow up? Go get in your vehicle and pull out of this parking lot. I, I guarantee you in less than five miles, you'll, you'll be told what to do probably five or ten times. There'll be multiple stop signs and red lights that are going to tell you what to do. See, here's the problem. The first Adam didn't love his wife. Oh, he was awed by her because when, when God brings her to him and brings him out of that anesthesia he put him in and he awakes and he sees this woman and he gives her to him, he calls her woman. The literal translation of that word is wow, oh wow. Adam was quite impressed with his gift. Whoa. But I don't know what happened in paradise. Without a devil. Without a devil. He got to the point he was tired of her. And was willing to see her die. It happened. Read the book. What do you think he was when Satan showed up? Is he out in the back 40 naming animals? No, he already did all that. What's he doing? He's tagging along. He's hearing a conversation. He's already lied to her. Now, before lying was lying. Before he knew he's lying. He's lied to her. God told him, don't eat the fruit. She said, God said, don't eat it or touch it. You understand? She was convinced if she just reached over and picked it up, she would die. Who told her that? God didn't. Adam did. She picks the fruit up, doesn't die, so she's not worried about the second part. He's waiting to see the second part. He's watching. You know, I, I love my wife. We've been married 41 years. Now, in 41 years, she's ticked me off a couple of times. I'll be honest. You won't, but I will. There have been several times she's ticked me off. But I never wanted to see her die. So I don't know what got into Adam to the point he was willing to sacrifice her. You see, he had several ribs left. He was convinced God said it's not good for man to be alone. And so if he takes this one, he'll give me a better one next time. And that's your fantasy all the way through life. 
It's in your genes. Adam had it in him. Just give me another one. I don't like this one. The second Adam shows up and says, okay, I'm going to show you how to love your wife. Second Adam says, you go to a cross and you die for her to prove to her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. I have a dear friend, he's an incredible prayer warrior. He had heart trouble last year and had to have three stents put in his heart. So he's going back to the medical center in Houston for a checkup. It's a Monday afternoon, 1 o'clock. We walks into this doctor's office, which is a group of doctors, not one by himself. Uh, the waiting room's almost as big as this room. And there are chairs, there's probably chairs for 50 or 60 patients. And when he walks in and checks in, he's the only one there. There's nobody else in the room. So he goes over and sits down. And he, he's, he has a book he's reading on soul winning. And he's read a little bit of it and laid it down beside him and he said, I, I was just trying to think about the book, what it was saying. I'm, I was trying to, to uh, etch it into my mind, and so I'd read it and lay it down. I, parts of it I was trying to memorize. And so while, while he's doing this, he hears the door open. And he looks up, uh, and in walks uh, a conservative, or conservative Jew. He's got his little cap on. He goes over and checks in. Now, this room's empty. He could have went anywhere in that room, sat down. He walked over, and he sat down in the chair beside my friend. There, there's one between the books on the chair between them. And he sits down, and he looks down at that book, and then he looks at my friend, he looks back at the book, and he said, what's that about? And he said, it's about soul winning. Well, he knows he's a Jew. He said, I... I when I looked at that man, I felt arrogance like I had never felt in my life. And so I, when I looked in his eyes, it, it was just almost like darkness when I was looking there. He said, he, he started trying to intimidate me. And he wanted to know, well, do you know the author? And he said, yes. And, and he said, well, explain this to me. And he said, well, it's witnessing about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, every time I'd use the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it, he'd tremble. He visibly was shaken by that name. And his intimidation just kind of disappeared because my friend took, he didn't know who he was dealing with. He's a prayer warrior. He took control of that environment. So this guy, they, they started a conversation. And, and for some reason, this gentleman starts saying, it's all about the conscience. My friend said, what do you mean? He said, it's all about the conscience. And so my friend said, you mean like right and wrong, the way Jesus taught? And he said, yes. He started shaking his hand. He said, see this watch? When I bought this watch, it was the most irritating thing I ever bought in my life. It was big. It was bulky. And when I put it on, it just irritated me. 
But it didn't take but about a month for me to get used to this watch. He said, I am a psychologist. And he's a very well-known one in Houston. And he made the statement. When the mind gets bored, the conscience goes to sleep. Whatever you get bored with, the mind, the conscience, just goes to sleep. If you get bored with church, your conscience is going to go to sleep about church. If you get bored coming here, your conscience will just start turning itself off. And there there come a point where you can rationalize all kinds of stuff. I, I've heard some really, really dumb statements in my practice. I've had gentlemen tell me, because of their 25 years of faithfulness, they paid their tithes, they gave offerings, supported missions, was at church every time the church doors were open. They didn't miss church for anything. They came home on vacation to be there on Sunday morning and Sunday night. They didn't miss church. If they couldn't be at church on Sunday morning, they'd find a church wherever they were at. They were going to be in church. And because of their faithfulness, God gave him a privilege to have an affair. I heard that. Just the way I explained it to you. How'd that happen? He got bored with church. He just got bored coming to the house of God. He, it just become an ordinary thing and we just... We, we do this on, on a regular, it's just a routine or, or it's something we, we just do again and again and it doesn't take long for your mind to start checking out and you can get bored with it. See, if you get bored with your wife, you'll lose your conscience with her. It doesn't take a long time for you to get bored with her. It doesn't take a whole lot of activity happening for you just to get complacent and, and all of a sudden, I, there, there are too much junk among us. There are too many cases of adultery. There's too much fornication happening. I need to close my eyes because your face is telling off on you. I think I'm going to preach like this for a while. See, you've come to the house of God long enough, you've lost your conscience, and you think God don't have one problem with your behavior. So you've learned to be a predator. 68 to 80% of all sexual abuse happens in a religious environment where people go to church. You can come to an altar and shout, you can run the aisles, you can dance, you can worship, and you can go home and be evil because you can turn your conscience off to it. You can convince yourself that the marriage bed is undefiled so nothing you do at your home is wrong. So you can twist the Scriptures to identify. Would you all like me to preach something else? Some of your faces say so.
You know what our problem is? We quit preaching about hell. You're not afraid of God anymore. Matter of fact, you're buying so bored with God, you'll defy Him. You'll stand His face. You'll argue with Him. You'll say, what, that preacher don't have any right to speak to me. He can't speak into my life. Who does he think he is to say those kind of things? We become a bunch of selfish, self-centered, spoiled brats. That's what Americans are. It's all about me and what I want, my desires, and I don't have to answer nobody. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And if your preacher dares preach about something that irritates you, you're going to jump up and run somewhere else. Now, I'm not a pastor. There's a lot of things I can say and get by with it that these guys can't. It's amazing what the will of God is. Now, you'll come to him and say, you know what, bro, pastor, I prayed it's the will of God for, for me and this lady to get married. You just took his ability to cause any kind of influence out of your life because you put it all in God's hands and you eliminated him from the process. He might know there's some real issues here. Oh, but you prayed about it. When you want your way, you always put God in the middle of the picture. It's the will of God. And about five years later, now it's the will of God to get divorced. I, I, last two summers ago, uh, I was preaching at a singles conference. When I got through and walked out the door, as I'm walking out the door, I hear my name being called, and so I stop, and a young man approaches me and says, Brother Hughes, God sent me to tell you that nothing you said today was spiritual. You're just an old man on a soapbox, ranting and raving. Well, I understand that Pentecostals don't like nobody messing with their life. We're not willing to be preached to it. You couldn't survive the preaching I heard as a child growing up in Pentecost. They could preach hell so hot you could feel it. It was a vision of hell that converted my father. My dad worked in a steel plant and they made springs for trucks during the arm, or during World War II and he opened a furnace one day to stick a spring in it to temper it. And when he opened the door, he saw hell and he heard the screams of hell and he saw the tormented souls of hell. He threw his tools down. He told his boss, I'm going home. The boss didn't say a word. He got in his car and he drove home. My mom saw him coming in the driveway and, and she made him at the door and said, what's wrong, Egbert? He said, call the preacher. We're going to church. And they got in the car and they went to the Pentecostal church that Tuesday morning and my dad received the baptism of the Holy Ghost because he saw a vision of hell. We're afraid to preach about it. There are no sermons on hell. Hell.
hell is a doctrine of Jesus Christ. It is not a doctrine of the Old Testament. Jesus spent as much time preaching about hell as he did heaven. It's a real place. Jesus said the worm dieth not. The, 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 the soul, the thirst is never quenched. Hell is a real place of torment. You better have a healthy respect for it if you want your life to be different. You're an American. You got all these rights as an American. Because you're an American, nobody can tell you what to do. You have a right to think. You have a right to say anything you want to say, anytime you want to say it, anywhere you want to say it. Not a good idea. You want to wreck your kids? Go ahead and do it. I hate you. I wish you weren't born. You're stupid. You're dumb. You can't do anything right. You'll never be successful. You're a mistake. You're worthless. I hate you. Yeah, some of you have heard, a lot of you have heard those statements. I can see your flinch when I say it. You're trying to guard your face, but you can't guard it because those wounds are so deep, they're permanently etched. Our, our lives have been affected by junk. And we've never healed from it. We've never let our lives become different. It's affecting us. Affecting the way we relate to God. It affects the way you come to church. It affects what you do at church. And it allows you to just get a cold heart about life and things. And it's okay to be to, to say things or be hurtful or, or, or to injure or hurt people in life. It's not okay. You know, Jesus gave us his opinion of offense. It'd be better a millstone was tied about your neck and drowned in the sea than to offend one of these little ones. Do you understand that was their form of capital punishment? You were convicted of a crime that required your death. They took you out in a boat in the Mediterranean Sea. They tied a rope around your neck. They tied that rope to a millstone. They threw it overboard and buried you in an unmarked grave where nobody would know you existed. Jesus said it would be better that life was erased, totally erased of any memory of you than to offend one of these little ones. God hates offense. But we do it. We slap our wives, hit our kids. You know, the saddest thing I've discovered about families is when you go to church, they don't get better, they get worse. 33% of Americans admit using violence in their families on a weekly basis. When you go to church, it's 40 to 43%. 53% of Americans admit using violence in their family on a yearly basis. You go to church, it's 60 to 63%. Shouldn't be. How does it happen? So you're in America. Anybody ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16? Paul writing to the Corinthians, because Corinth is a town that has a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. It's on top of the hill. There's over one 
thousand prostitutes in that temple. The way they show their worship, the females show their worship to Aphrodite is they cut their hair off as a sacrifice. When Paul said we have no such custom, he's talking about the custom of women giving their hair as a sacrifice to Aphrodite. But he's also dealing with a whole lot of other issues in their lives and their morality issues. And they were, they thought it was perfectly okay to have sex with a harlot. That's how you worship Aphrodite. Shouldn't we worship God that way? The problem with the church is the longer it lives in its world, the more of the characteristics of its world it takes on. I read to you from the book of Revelations about the church at Philippi or Philadelphia. All these accusations God has against every one of these churches are characteristics of the cities they live in. They've lived there long enough. Thou art rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, Laodicea. Laodicea had an earthquake that destroyed it in 83 A.D. When Rome sent him a letter saying, you've been very faithful to us, we want to help you rebuild. Laodicea sent a letter back to Rome saying, we don't need your money, we can take care of ourselves. Thou art rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. See, the problem of you living in the world you live in is the fact it's real easy for you to take on the nature and characteristics of it if you get bored with your church. See, I, I'm answering too many questions about heaven or hell issues. I'm being asked too many times, is, Brother Hughes, is, 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 am I going to go to hell if I do this? Why are we asking those questions? Why don't we know what we believe? Has God changed? No. What's wrong? We've got bored with church. And when we get bored with church, we start attacking everything it stands for. And we won't know if marriage and divorce is a heaven or hell issue. Is cutting of hair a heaven or hell issue? By the way, that's a real dumb question. Actually, it's a cowardly question. You don't have the courage to ask the real one. The real question is, what's the least I have to do to get by? Draw me a line in the sand so I know where the limits are. My Bible indicates that living for God is a marriage. I have a spouse, you to one husband. I'd never have a marriage if I asked my wife, what's the least amount of my time you need? What's the least amount of affection I need to show you? What's the least of me that I need to invest in this? When you become part of the church, you found a treasure in the field, and you sell all you have, and you buy the field. Why are we questioning all kinds of junk? Why? We got bored. We're bored with our kids, and so we don't stay involved in our lives. Let me tell you what research says about your children. Research says the only reason your children get involved in drug, sex, and alcohol is because you don't know where they're at or what they're doing or who they're with. Research says that 
family pressure is more powerful than peer pressure. And if you keep your nose in their business, they won't be affected by their peers. They're affected by their peers because you get bored and you got better things to do than to hassle with all their questions. So you just get bored with them and you let the world start raising them and then they grow up not to know anything about the God you love or participate in the church you are part of and they have no connection at all. How'd that happen? You checked out their life. There's never a moment you check out. They're living at your house and they're 21. You better have your nose in their business. Oh, that irritated a bunch of people. My kids married, moved off, moved out of town, job transferring back to town, didn't have a place to stay. Daughter-in-law is very sick, has to have surgery. They moved back to my house. They still had a midnight curfew. Yeah, I'm an old man. First of all, I can get real ugly out here. See all these things right here? You know what they did your life? They started wrecking it. When the light bulb was invented, you lost four hours of sleep. See, God created your body. When your eyes can't see light, you get sleepy. Your brain produces a hormone called melatonin, and it makes you go to sleep. Now we've got all the synthetic stuff so your brain never knows when you need to sleep. And sleep deprivation is destroying you. It's causing sugar diabetes. It's causing hypertension. It's causing depression. It's causing every major disease that happens. It's a result of you not sleeping God didn't intend for you to stay up all night. There's absolutely nothing for you to do at midnight. If your brain don't get at least six hours of sleep a night, it cannot be healthy. If you can get by on four and a half hours of sleep, the odds are incredibly high. You have problems with attention deficit disorder. You have problems with bipolar disorder. You have problems with manic episodes. You have problems with schizophrenic episodes. It's all about a devil, right? There's spirits out here doing all this. No, if you just grow up and go to bed like an adult... What are you bored with? You want your life changed? Change it. You have the Holy Ghost living in you. That's the creative power of God living inside of you. And there is nothing you can't find answers to. There is no problem you cannot solve. There is nothing you cannot conquer. Paul said, I can do 
all things through Christ with strength. All things. There is nothing in my life I cannot do if I choose. We're just too stinking lazy. We think we're owed it. People are going to do it for us. Paul said, Know you not he who joins himself to a harlot is one? Did he say that? For two saith he shall be one flesh. You understand what Paul just said? Paul said, If you have sex with that harlot, you married her. In the eyes of God, sex is marriage. You're an American, and you think there's no marriage until you have a piece of paper to hang on the wall. So you can go out and have sex with a hundred people, and you've never married them. In God's eyes, you've been married a hundred times. There's no such thing as casual sex. You have sex with somebody... You're going to walk away with their spirit attached to you. That word cleave means to glue together. When you glue things together and break them apart, you don't get clean breaks. You get involved with somebody and you walk away, you're going to walk away with their spirit attached to you. You're going to wind up thinking like them, acting like them, and looking like them because their spirit is attached to you. You go attached. It what if they've been attached to somebody else? Now you got two spirits. What if that one was attached to somebody else? Now you got three. Every person, they did a little diagram of what could happen. You could have as many as 2,000 people attached to your life by one encounter with a loose person. We just got bored. Virtue's not important anymore. Being a virgin, that's not important. Being pure. Well, I could preach about other things. It's not going to change your life. See, that's the problem with us. We've stuck our head in the sand. We've never addressed the real problem. And we've created a monster. And it's our fault. We can't blame nobody else for it but us. We want our world changed. We gotta start changing it. We gotta make a decision. You know what? This is not gonna happen at my house. Victoria don't have any secrets. You drag that dumb magazine to your house, you let your wife subscribe to it, you find it in the bathroom with a nine year old, you're in trouble. You just introduced him to an addiction to pornography that can last for a lifetime because you've taught him that a, a woman is simply about her body and what she looks like. What are you bored with? Get bored with your wife because she don't look like she used to? Mm. There's too many of you hooking up on Facebook with, with, with people you went to school with and and you, and you jump out there and get connected to somebody that, that remembers an event they had with you. And they start reminding you about, oh, you remember when we did so-and-so? And then you start getting reconnected. And you all wind up out here somewhere doing something you shouldn't do. How's that happening? We're just bored. You've got to be really bored. 
to be on Facebook. You've got to be more than bored. If you can spend 10 minutes there, but you can't spend 10 minutes with your kids or your wife, or you can't spend 10 minutes in prayer with God, there's a problem. And you can get addicted to that. You spend hours there. You gotta, every time somebody does something and your phone goes off, you got to see who, who connected to you. How dumb have we become? We have become mindless. We're bored with everything. We're bored with life. We're bored with church. We're bored with family. We're bored with children. It's no longer important to us because we just let the world become part of us. And we think like them. So now I'm an old man on a soapbox because I dare address Facebook. I could care less what you eat, and I don't care where you've been or what you've seen. And if you think other people are really that impressed, you've got a problem. We've we become, we're bored with everything. You better fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ again. You better fall in love with His Word. You better fall in love with prayer. Why, why is it that it takes such a great effort to get us connected to God in prayer? Why, why do we have to become cheerleaders to get people involved in connecting to God? Are we so bored with God that it's just a little bit of our time because there are other things I need to be doing. There's other places I need to go. I, I just, I need to get connected to this or there's something else I need to do. Are you so in love with Jesus? You can't stand to be away from Him. You just want to be in His presence all the time. You get in your car and you say, Hey God, what, 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 why don't you get in the car with me? What, what can we talk about today? God, what a privilege to be your child today. God, there's, there's nothing like connecting you. God, I, I, I enjoy your presence. I enjoy being with you. There's just nothing like you today, Jesus. There's nothing like you today, Jesus. I, I just love you, Jesus. Please stand. I'm through. About eight years ago, I had the privilege of being in the home of Paul Price, one of our esteemed elders, a gentleman who's paid a tremendous price for the gospel. At that time, he was about 81. His wife was real sick. He's standing, we're in his home, and he's, he's standing at the kitchen. And his sink had a window that looked out over the front. When you look out the window, you in the distance, there's a big mountain there. His house is at the bottom of the mountain. You stand there and look. And he's standing there looking out the window, and I walk up, and we're talking. He said, Brother Hughes, tears start running down his face. Brother Hughes, I'm 81, and I don't think I know Jesus. I'm consumed with knowing Him. I don't want to know nothing but Jesus. I don't want to think about nothing but Jesus. 
I don't have a lot of time left. The rest of my life, I'm going to spend it trying to know Jesus. I find another old man in a prison about to be executed by Nero. He writes to the church at Philippi. He says, I have not quite apprehended that which I am apprehended at. I don't have a hold of what has a hold of me. See, we got tired of trying to find what has a hold of us. And if you get distracted by the journey, it's easy to get your eyes off on other things instead of getting connected to the God that loves you more than anything in the world. I just want to know him. I'm past that age in life where that's what's going on in my life. Last summer I preached in a Baptist church. I preached an anniversary service for a Baptist pastor. They honored him. He didn't even participate in the service. He was sitting on the front row and there was a lady that introduced me to speak. Before I spoke, she had the church stand and she prayed. I'm haunted by her prayer because her prayer was, Father, would you let Reverend Hughes step far enough into your spirit that we don't see him, we see you. I just try to step far enough into him where I can disappear. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. Have you got bored? Gracious Father, I thank you for your incredible spirit that's here. I thank you for loving kindness and tender mercies that's from everlasting to everlasting. Lord, I thank you today for your gentle spirit that's here. You're not trying to torment us. You're trying to love us. And you've tried to convince us with your love just how close you want to be to us and how much you want to be part of our lives. You love us when we don't deserve to be loved. When I'm a horrible wretch, you take me in your arms and love me in spite of my failures and my mistakes. Lord Jesus, I pray that your children today would open their hearts and make a decision that they're not going to get bored with you anymore. We're not going to get bored with church. We're not going to get bored with worship. We're not going to get bored with your word. We're not going to get bored with prayer. We're not going to get bored with 
sharing you with the world that we live in. Thank you for your incredible presence that we feel right now. Would you touch a heart, Jesus? Would you step into a heart? Let them feel your spirit as it draws them to reminder of the relationship that you desire to have with them. Thank you for your great presence we feel right now. In the name of Jesus. I open these altars to you today. If you'd like to have an audience with your father, he's here. If you just respond, he won't force you. He won't make you. There will be no demand. But if you desire his touch, I promise you he will touch you. He's here today.